Most people love to travel, but most do it for pleasure, not because they're wanted by authorities from various countries. But what does it take to avoid prison when you're an international fugitive? You're about to find out. Stolen passports, secret identities, requests for asylum. The people on this countdown did what they needed to do to stay free. When I reveal number one, staying free was something this man did even after being taken into custody twice. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 international manhunts. So I once thought that I paid good enough attention to international crimes and manhunts. Like, I don't know if I like fancied myself a connoisseur of them, but I think <laughs> I knew about them. But then I read my half of the list and I realized that I don't know anything about international crimes and manhunts. No. Like nothing. There's a whole world of shenanigans out there and I was just living in the dark. Well, you're not alone in the dark because honestly, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise <laughs> to anyone listening that I've never heard of anything on my side of the list. And to be honest, I'm really not thinking I'm going to know that many things on your side of the list. Because if it's not like a housewife, like scandal or some kind of fraud, something like that, or just something we've covered on Morbid, then I don't really know about it. I love you. <laughs> but you know what? I will say, I think you're going to know my number one. At the very least, you'll know my number one. Okay. So you'll be able to hang your hat on that. I'm glad. He's a character. To say the least, he is a character. That's all I'll say. Okay, I'm going to yeah. look forward to hoping that I know who that is. He's a slippery one, that one. Okay, well, that's how this whole thing works. Elena has five international manhunt examples, and so do I. But neither of us knows what the other is bringing to the countdown. Let's start the countdown. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt. On the runway of Miami's airport in June 1993, Juan would launch his first known con, pretending to be a 13-year-old orphan from Colombia who stowed away on a flight by hanging onto the plane's wheel well. It was an unbelievable story, and rightfully so, it was fake. 
From there, Juan became a globetrotting con man with different identities in several countries and stealing at least a million dollars worth of money, jewelry, and passports. After his lie about being a 13-year-old stowaway in Miami, that con paid off. Juan was actually 17 years old and gladly accepted the thousands of dollars in support and charity from strangers when his fake story got out. This is a big first con for a 17-year-old. Yeah, I'd say so. Right? So investigators eventually uncovered his real identity. Juan was deported, but that didn't stop him. By 1998, he had jumped bail in Britain over some burglaries and was caught using a fake ID boarding a flight to Miami. In 1999, he was caught after stealing a credit card from a Tokyo hotel, and he just paid a fine. By the early 2000s, though, his hotel robberies were in full swing. He's making it a full-time job at this point. (laughs) certainly is, and his MO would be to watch wealthy hotel guests leave their room. He'd fake being them at the front desk to convince them to give him a new room key. Then he'd call security from the room, saying he forgot the combo to the safe. They'd open it, and he would walk away with cash, credit cards, jewels, passports, etc. Like, all kinds of good stuff. That seems both, like, very simple and very complicated at the same time. Truly, it does. Because it's just him being like, hi, I'm that guy. And they're like, "Okay, okay, here's your room key. And he just walks into the room with the room key, and then he's like... Hi, I forgot my safe combo. And they're like, oh, no problem. Here you go. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, let us just be as helpful as humanly possible. It's just preying on hospitality. And you also would think that you'd need to show some kind of ID or something. You would think. Like, okay. One would think. Okay, Juan. <laughs> now, in 2004, he was caught and sentenced to three and a half years in prison in the UK, but he only served two months of that sentence. Jeez. He served more time in prison in Dublin, then got extradited to France. In 2006, there was an arrest warrant out for him in Vegas for his hotel shenanigans. In 2007, Swiss police wanted him too. It's like safe to say several countries were looking for the same man, but they didn't realize it all at once. Wow, he was like an international man of mystery. Where's Juan? Where's Waldo? (laughs) Where is he? Juan had at least 10 IDs in eight different countries and had been deported three times from the U.S. He's busy. He is. In 2009, Juan had crossed the border from Canada into the U.S. At a gas station in Derby Lane, Vermont, an off-duty border agent overheard Juan telling more lies, which led to his arrest. Arrest. He's like, that guy's lying. You a liar. I hear him tell lies over there. Why are you always lying, Juan? <laughs> now, there are unconfirmed reports posted online that say he spent time in prison in the U.S., Hong Kong, and France after this, but we can't verify that. We also cannot confirm where he is today, but that's something I'm sure he loves. I'm sure he appreciates that. I think so. I don't know where he is. A man of mystery. Nine. At number nine is Glenn Stewart Godwin. Not many people have successfully escaped Folsom Prison. One of the few to ever make it out was Glenn Godwin in 1987. Glenn's escape was like a movie scene. He got out through a 300-yard storm drain, and it was clear he had help. Someone seemed to have cut the iron bars on the drain so he could get out, and he was never caught. In 1981, Glenn Godwin was convicted of murder in Riverside County, California. Glenn reportedly brutally killed a friend and local drug dealer by choking and stabbing them. He then strapped explosives to the body and blew it up in the desert near Palm Springs. Oh, okay. So he did something real bad. He definitely did. 
Glenn quickly landed himself on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, which I think is shocking to exactly no one. I was going to say, you don't say. Yeah, wow, shocking. <laughs> Wowee. Glenn was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison and eventually landed in Folsom Prison near Sacramento, California. Now, June 1987, he escapes from Folsom by getting into a storm drain under the prison and making his way to the end of it where someone had cut the bar for him to get out. He disappears with his wife, Shelly. Shelly's just like, hey, I brought you a sandwich. <laughs> hey, honey. State prison employees on duty that day said, quote, we found in the tunnel where Godwin went out, there was white spray painted smiley faces with arrows indicating the direction to go out towards the river. That is so ominous. It really is. I, would I don't not, like that at all. I would not want to go in that tunnel. That's not happy. Months after his escape, it seemed like Glenn landed in a Mexican prison under an alias for drugs and weapons charges. But September 1991, California was working to have Glenn sent back when he murdered another inmate in that Mexican prison and then escaped. He's like a full-time escaper. The most slippery, this man. December 1996, Glenn's wife, are we talking about Shelly? Hey, Shelly. She's arrested after their story appears on the TV show America's Most Wanted. But Glenn Godwin has never been found. Ooh. It's widely believed Godwin has stayed south of the border. He was removed from the Most Wanted list in May 2016. I wonder, like, what you have to do to get removed from that. Like, right. do you just stay in hiding for I a guess. while? They're just like, well, I guess we don't want that. you that bad anymore. Also, is Shelly mad? Because I would be kind of mad. I'd be so upset. I'd be like, go get Glenn. For real. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of international manhunts is Edward Snowden. Whistleblower or traitor? Depending on who you ask, you'll probably get a different answer. But if you're to believe Edward Snowden, he truly believed he was doing something right, exposing government overreach. But the way he went about doing that made him a wanted man by the United States and has left him unable to come back to the country without fear of prosecution. In 2013, Edward Snowden worked in IT under contract with the US government and the National Security Agency, AKA the NSA. While there, Snowden saw actions that he thought were wrong and set out to be a whistleblower. He illegally snuck top secret documents out of the country and met up with journalists in Hong Kong to hand them over. I think that's like the number one no-no. I feel like that's probably in your handbook. <laughs> like on the first day at orientation, they're like, Don't do, do not take our papers and bring <laughs> them anywhere outside of Don't this country. Thank you. Especially because those documents showed how the NSA had been spying on American citizens. Rot row. Snowden believed it to be a complete violation of privacy from the U.S. on its own citizens. The U.S. government called him a traitor and said his actions violated the Espionage Act. Snowden quickly went from whistleblower to international fugitive, and he never made it back into the U.S. from that Hong Kong meeting. Oh, imagine just going to a meeting and you can never come back. They're like, no, sorry, <laughs> no wow. way. Now, once he was a wanted man, he intended to go to Ecuador and seek asylum. But when he got to Russia, things went awry. Snowden told NPR, quote, what I wasn't expecting was that the United States government itself would cancel my passport. Yeah, I don't know if anybody expects that. <laughs> but like, I you're kind of like coming. going against the entire country. So like, I think you should expect them to do that. If you actually think about it, just the entire country canceling your passport. Yeah, it's real messed like, up. That's really scary. It's very terrifying. Yeah. Well, it got him a lot of attention in Russia, who always loves the U.S. 
Russian <laughs> officials pulled him into a room and tried to get him to hand over the information about the U.S. to them, too. Snowden refused. He said, quote, I didn't cooperate with the Russian intelligence services. I haven't and I won't. I destroyed my access to the archive. I had no material with me before I left Hong Kong because I knew I was going to have to go through this complex, multi-jurisdictional route. He spent 40 days in the Moscow airport being denied asylum by 27 nations. Jeez Louise. No nation wants you. They're like, no thanks. That's rough. And he's still living in Russia today, though not at the airport. (laughs) Moving on up. Moving on up. Now, in October 2020, a federal court said Snowden must pay the U.S. government $5 million from his book royalties and speaking fees. And in November 2020, Snowden announced he's seeking Russian citizenship. He'll be a dual citizen with the U.S. Yeah, I mean, if you're already there, you might as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's (laughs) kind of like he has to. (laughs) Wow. Seven. At number seven this week is Samantha Luthwaite. Samantha went from dropping out of the University of London as a teen to becoming one of the most wanted international terrorists in the world. She was once married to one of the suicide bombers on the 7-7 bombings in London in 2005. It helped earn her the nickname The White Widow. She's been involved in several terrorist attacks and has links to Al-Qaeda. Wow. Yeah, she's a lot. We're going fast on this list. We really are. We're here. When you see someone get radicalized, there's always a deep dive into how. Samantha Luthwaite had a seemingly normal life. She was born in Northern Ireland, grew up in England. She studied politics and religion at the University of London before dropping out. College is usually where a lot of young people start to get influenced by extreme views. It's not clear if that's the case here. But somewhere around this time, Samantha was exposed to what The Guardian calls a, quote, narrative of terrorism. October 2002, Samantha marries Jermaine Lindsay, who in 2005 takes part in the bombings on July 7th in London. He killed 26 civilians in the attack and himself. Samantha's only about 21, 22 years old about now, by the way, with all this happening. That's insane. Like a literal child. Or like actually. Adding more craziness to the story, Samantha was pregnant with their second child at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, as if this couldn't get worse. Right? In 2012, Kenya wants to chat with Samantha about a suspected terror plot, which was being organized by a group she allegedly had ties to. At this point, she's a full international fugitive with reportedly three different identities at least, and using fake travel docs to get around. And she's also a mom, apparently. Yeah, of two. She's busy. Samantha's wanted enough that Scotland Yard, the CIA, and Kenyan authorities all start looking for her. That's when you know yeah. things have gotten realer than real. Things have gone awry <laughs> to at say this the point. least. They've gone too far. In July 2012, she's linked to a grenade attack at a bar in Mombasa during a Euro 2012 football match. So she's really dangerous. She absolutely is. In September 2013, an attack on the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi that killed 71 people and injured 200 also gets connected to Samantha. Jeez. Needless to say, she's super dangerous and sadly was never found. So she's still out there lurking. Yep. But it was rumored she may have been killed by a Russian sniper in 2014. 
but it's not confirmed. That is so scary. Wild. The fact that they're just like, well, she might be dead, but we're not sure. We're not real sure. I think it's also like, it's even scarier that her name's just Samantha. Samantha. I was thinking that this whole time. It makes me think of Frozen 2 when Olaf is like, Samantha? Dude, we are on the same wavelength. And it makes it scarier. It makes it way scarier. Six. Also on our list at number six is America's most dangerous con man, Victor Lustig. Being a successful con man takes a lot of confidence and skill. You have to be so smooth no one sees through your charade. And in the 1900s, Victor Lustig was so good, he once sold the Eiffel Tower to scrap metal collectors, not once, but twice. I'm sorry, what? A smooth criminal, if you will. The smoothest. You know, I don't think that I've ever been scammed like that. I to can, that degree. I can say with full confidence that I've never been scammed <laughs> that badly. No, no. Never. Raise your hand if you have, because I don't yeah. know if anybody has. That is really legendary. The Eiffel Tower as For scrap, scrap metal. metal. Twice. Wow. So let's talk about Victor Lustig. Please, let's. In 1890, he was born in Austria-Hungary, grows up, becomes fluent in several languages, like, go off, Vic, and then (laughs) decides to see the world. It's like, we're off to a good start here. That sounds great. But his motivation for travel, he can take advantage of gullible wealthy travelers. Not great. Not great. One of the ways he did that was with his money box. It basically was a mahogany box that acted like an ATM. You put money in it and it spit it out. That is mahogany. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) But old Victor convinced people that it actually printed new money. He'd insert an authentic $100 bill and the box would spit out two more. People went wild for this and would pay him upwards of $10,000 to buy it. Victor would be long gone before they figured out the truth. You know what? Bold. Very bold. Bold. Not awesome, but bold. (laughs) (laughs) Now, by 1925, Victor's ready to go big or go home with these cons. He lands in Paris and he goes really big. He contacts scrap metal dealers. He takes meetings with them where he makes sure they can't talk about the meeting. So he makes it seem very important. And then somehow he convinces dealers on two occasions to buy the Eiffel Tower from him for scrap metal. How? Now, how ready? did he convince them? I don't know how he did it, but at least one of those scams earned him $70,000. And then he just took off to Austria. They were like, yeah. This makes sense. We can buy the Eiffel Tower and just scrap the whole it thing. It makes sense that they're just going to give us the Eiffel Tower for $70,000 for scrap metal. Scrap metal. Like, what did he tell them? Like, we just don't like it anymore? We decided it's not feng shui. They're going to put a dumb light show on it It's in the future and it's going to make me sad. He's so like, let's just get rid of it. No. He's like, That's I don't really what? like a tourist spot. It's, it's going to be too weird. crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. Vic. Well, he also pulled off cons in America, most notably on Al Capote. Oh, okay. <laughs> the man could have been anywhere in the world using 47 aliases. And in 1935, the feds caught him. But he escaped his cell by using his bedsheet to propel down the wall of the prison while acting like he was a window washer. I'm literally obsessed with I him. mean, like, innovative. Yeah. He was eventually caught again, ended up in Alcatraz. And the story is he died in prison in March 1947, but nobody knows for sure. No, we don't. We don't know anything about Vic. We'll never know. We don't. Only Vic knows.
I'm literally obsessed with Victor. Yeah, like that wins already. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. And the fact that he was propelling down a prison wall pretending to be a window washer. Smart. Get out. That's. I love that it. Takes it. Ingenious. Number one, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> should we even go further? I don't think we should. Let's end it. Yeah, and right also on that. Samantha was number seven. So where are we headed on this Samantha list? truly terrified me. I'm upset about it. It's getting scary. Olaf should not be looking for her. No. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of international manhunts. Starting off the second half of our list, pirates Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. The stories told say Anne and Mary came from similar childhoods before disguising themselves as men as adults in order to sail as pirates across international waters. After the two met, it's anyone's guess what actually is fact and fiction. But these two were truly the Thelma and Louise of the 18th century, with an ending that's as uncertain as their adventures. Being a pirate in the 1700s meant commandeering other ships, stealing their goods, taking prisoners, avoiding arrest, and that you were a man. Boo. Boo. Women aboard ships at the time were usually in servant roles or sex workers. And Bonnie wasn't having it. She left her husband and joined a pirate crew, plundering ships disguised as a man. We love feminism. Smithsonian says she launched her pirate career by scaring a French merchant ship who surrendered their ship after seeing her standing over a bloody mangled corpse with an axe. Oh, yeah. That would make me surrender my ship as well. Bonnie. Have it. Take yeah, it. That would scare me. The corpse was actually a mannequin, though. Aw, I would have been fooled. Yeah, I would have. According to some accounts of the story, the ship Anne was on conquered Mary's ship. Oh. Mary was taken prisoner, but bared her breasts to Anne to show she was also a woman. She's like, check this out. She was like, look at this. I gotta tell you something. <laughs> the two vowed to keep each other's secrets, and a friendship was born. Which, I gotta say, the greatest story to be like, you want to know how I met your Aunt Mary? Right? Like, that's how I met your mother, but how I met your Aunt Mary. And way <laughs> like, better. <laughs> you should absolutely, TM, TM, yeah, make that a show. That's a show I got. 
Apparently, the two constantly fought side by side, never afraid to do anything, including pillaging, taking prisoners, you know, piratey stuff. Ahoy, matey! Arr! In fall 1720, their ship was overtaken and the men basically surrendered, but Anne and Mary fought on without them. Yeah, they did. Of course they did. The story goes that Mary yelled to the men, if there's a man among ye, you'll come up and fight like the man ye are to be, and then shot at them, killing a man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got rough at the end. That's Mary. Like, you know, it, like, it was real, like, woo, in the beginning. Sadly, they were both captured and put on trial. But before they could be hanged for their crimes, they claimed to be pregnant, which saved their lives. Ah, there you go. What happened to them afterwards has been a mystery. But a YouTuber did some digging in historical docs and found their names in a burial registry in Jamaica, where their trial took place. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. If it's them... Mary died just months after the trial. Anne seemed to have lived a fairly quiet life after that until she died. Oh, she was probably sad that Mary was gone. They were like the best of friends. They were literally Thelma and Louise of pirate ships. Bosom buddies. Bosom buddies. How long did it take you to come up with that one? I was waiting. (laughs) Four. Landing at number four this week is Rafael Caro Quintero. The thing about Rafael is he's already served 28 years for the crime he's now a wanted man for. In 2013, he was released from prison in Mexico. Rafael had been convicted for ordering the kidnapping and murder of Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA Special Agent Enrique Camarena in 1985. But now the U.S. wants him, and they're willing to pay big time. There's a $20 million reward for the capture of Rafael Caro Quintero. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big sum. We're really going into this. Yeah, we are. So if you've ever heard of or watched the Netflix series Narcos Mexico, this is the story behind ah. it. Yeah. On February 7th, 1985, DEA Special Agent Enrique Camarena is kidnapped. Members of the cartel dragged him from a car, took him to a house where they interrogated, tortured, and murdered him. They first buried his body in a Guadalajara park, then moved it to a secluded ranch. A massive manhunt for those responsible was immediately put into action. Prosecutors in L.A. were able to bring a few criminal cases against individuals. But let's be honest, the U.S. wanted the big names, and they got one. Rafael Caro Quintero was indicted in 1987 of ordering the kidnapping and death of Camarena. The Guardian reported that Rafael, quote, served 28 years of a 40-year sentence before being freed from prison in August 2013 on administrative grounds. What are administrative grounds? I was going to say, explain. (laughs) You served 28 years. You've got a few left, but never mind. Administrative grounds. Yeah, we'll just call that. Expectedly, the U.S. government was not happy about his release. No? Less than a week later, a Mexican judge issued a warrant for his arrest. But Rafael was gone, gone, gone. He was gone, girl. Gone, girl. In 2016, U.S. officials said that Rafael was still active in the drug trade. So back to his old ways, just much more underground. And he's still hiding. But there's a twist. The U.S. Justice Department started re-examining the case. And there are implications that members of the CIA and the DEA were part of the kidnap and murder plot. Whoa. Like, Hollow. Twisty twist. A big twist. Rafael Caro Quintero is now on the 10 most wanted fugitive list again with a $20 million reward. Dang. 
three. Number three on our countdown of international manhunts is Joseph Coney. Coney is a monster. Let's not sugarcoat it. He's a warlord, a child kidnapper, and a killer. Like classic cult leaders we've covered on this show, Joseph Coney used religion to manipulate and control his followers in Uganda. And if anyone questioned his actions or beliefs, things turned violent and deadly very quickly. That led to a 2005 international criminal court arrest warrant for Coney on 12 counts of crimes against humanity and 21 counts of war crimes. Joseph Coney was the so-called leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA. According to the BBC, the group was, quote, notorious for abducting thousands of children to use as soldiers or sex slaves. Disgusting. Yeah, that is gross. Coney called himself a, quote, freedom fighter, but he basically took the freedom away from everybody around him. He controlled his followers using fear and is allegedly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people in Uganda. He would use biblical references to justify killing his own people. That's, again, disgusting. He's disgusting. In 2005, Kony was indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court, the ICC. The same year, in 2005, the LRA was forced out of Uganda into Sudan near the Democratic Republic of Congo, where their crimes against humanity continued. There were attempts at diplomacy with the group to make peace, but they failed in 2008, not surprisingly. Kony wanted assurances that he and his allies would not be prosecuted. <laughs> okay, Joe. Yeah, like, okay. yeah, for sure, guy, we'll All give right, that to sure, you. Joe. The international community was not going to let him go unpunished, and I'm glad they wouldn't. But while some LRA fighters were prosecuted, Kony escaped capture and prosecution for years. That's infuriating. In 2012, you may have heard of Kony 2012. It was a publicity campaign against Kony, exposing his crimes and making the world much more aware of him. Within six days of its release, the Kony 2012 project was viewed over 100 million times. At the time, it was the most watched viral video. In 2017, the U.S. and Ugandan authorities ended their efforts to find him. In 2021, Ugandan media reported Kony may have died from COVID-19. The fact that Kony is not number one on this list yeah. should tell you something about number one. That's really scary. I remember in high school, we had an assembly and some of the people that worked on that video talked at the yeah. assembly. It was huge. There used to be flyers everywhere. You'd mm -hmm. see Kony 2012. Yeah. And it was a good way of doing it because a lot of people didn't know what was going on. Well, that's so the it was thing. a good way to expose everybody to exactly. it. Exactly. But I got to tell you, my number one is my number one, I feel. It is. It's Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. <laughs> I mean, that one truly you can't get better than that go off queens you can't get better you than literally that. can't you can't I they mean, were some buddies forever they were vibing i love that they really were that you just called them i'll again. never stop can't stop won't stop <laughs> please don't but you know what my actual number one on the list is one i think you're gonna know okay i hope so because so yeah. far i haven't known any of them <laughs> Two. 
We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of international manhunts. At number two is Miami's cocaine godmother, Griselda Blanco. If you've read reports about Griselda Blanco, you'll hear a story about a poor young teen in Colombia obsessed with the Godfather films, who grew up doing what it took to take care of her family and those around her. Her friends say she was a caring woman, as long as you were loyal. And if you talk to the feds, they'll tell you she was an international criminal who brought countless shipments of cocaine to the United States. Now, throughout the 70s and 80s, Griselda Blanco was allegedly responsible for countless murders and shipments upon shipments of cocaine coming from Miami to Colombia. A true drug boss, if there ever was one. (laughs) She's also been linked to um, Pablo Escobar. Oh, ever heard of him? Yeah, just him. Now, in 1975, Blanco's luck with the law ran out, and she was charged in Miami with conspiring to manufacture, smuggle, and distribute cocaine in the United States. Just that. Serious charges. She took off back to Colombia, where she was able to hide from authorities using fake identities. Somehow, she later made her way back to Miami. Sneaky little gal. They all are. They are. And she continued her drug operations. She was reportedly known for inventing new custom-designed underwear with secret pockets to stash drugs. That's innovative. They're all so innovative. That's real innovative. And allegedly, she was importing $80 million in drugs per month. I'm like speechless. <laughs> $80 million, million dollars a month. Wow. Now, don't forget, though, she's also having people killed in the process. Ooh. Never forget. No. In 1984, she left Miami, still a wanted woman. In 1985, the DEA finally found her in Irvine, California. She was sentenced to six years in prison. Six? Yes, because don't forget that she has literally had people killed. As we just stated, don't forget that. Never forget that. They forgot that, They did. That's why I'm telling you not to make the same mistake. Then in 1994, Blanco was charged with ordering three murders in the Miami area. In 2004, Blanco was deported back to Colombia and apparently stayed out of trouble in the spotlight. And then in 2012, local media reported that she was shot leaving a butcher shop. Whoa. Griselda Blanco dies at 69 years old. Who killed her? I gotta know. I don't know. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 international manhunts, El Chapo. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman didn't just spend time evading capture. He's been caught three times, two of which saw him escape from maximum security prisons in Mexico. Slippery little drug lord. (laughs) If you're looking for reasons why he's number one on a countdown about manhunts, El Chapo's journey to prison is an adventure. Okay, I'm so relieved because you really hyped up me knowing number one. I was like, I'm not sure. I might not know. I know El Chapo. You know. So El Chapo was born in the 50s. By the 70s, he was already working for cartels. In 1989, the cartel he's in starts to split apart. El Chapo and friends spin off and create what became the Sinaloa Cartel. Scary. The Sinaloa Cartel, like Ash said, is vicious. Yeah. They gain power through murder and wars with rival cartels. Needless to say, authorities have their attention on El Chapo at this point. 
1993, Mexican authorities arrest El Chapo, and he's sentenced to 20 years in prison two years later. But El Chapo is like, let's cut this short. Enough with the funny business. So here's escape number one. In 2001, his first prison escape, prison officials that he corrupted helped smuggle him out in a laundry cart. Classic. Like, just picture that. So classic. Yeah, they just smuggled him right out in the laundry. Do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. I feel like there had to have been some kind of, like, jaunty. Elevator music. No, like, something jaunty. Like, do, 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 do. You okay. know, like, you just feel like it's like, woo. Yeah, I feel like it. But it was bad. So now he's back on the run. While a wanted man, he gets married. And in a weird turn of events, is named to Forbes magazine's World's Most Powerful People in 2009. Interesting. The magazine claims El Chapo is a billionaire. Oh. I guess that makes it They claimed Kylie was too, but she's not. They sure did. In 2012, showing he won't go easy, Mexican federal police almost recaptured him, but he was able to evade them for another two years. He is slippery. He is. He knows what he's doing. He does. In February 2014, Mexican Marines arrest him after he avoided them as much as possible using underground tunnels, a move that comes back in play while he's in prison. I had a feeling with the way you said underground Underground. tunnels. Just just make sure you remember that. Underground. Because that brings us to 2015. El Chapo escaped again through a hatch in his prison shower. He dropped down to a mile-long tunnel. Whoa. Also, why was there a hatch in his prison shower? And to drop down? Like, this is just a Six Flags ride all of a sudden? (laughs) In your prison cell? Tower of Terror underneath your shower? Like, what's going on, man? But you know what? I guess third time's the charm. January 2016, El Chapo is back in custody after a shootout with Mexican Marines. Oh. According to Time, five people were killed and one Marine was wounded in the fight. He's eventually sent back to the U.S. to face charges. In July 2019, a federal judge in Brooklyn sentenced Guzman to life in prison, plus 30 years. He'll reportedly spend that sentence fully at the U.S. Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility in Florence, Colorado, a.k.a. ADX Florence, the nation's most secure supermax prison, which is exactly what he needs. Also, supermax, like, that sounds fun. Like, it sounds like a ride, but, like, yeah. you don't want to go to the supermax prison. It also sounds like a really good supermarket. Like, ooh, did you get that at supermax? It does. You're yeah, right. you get the extra large toilet paper there. Yeah, but you don't, though. You don't. You get the one ply, I bet. That's right. Probably, like, half ply. I would say El Chapo is definitely number one. Yeah, I I don't think you could put anybody else there and still have El Chapo on the list. But you know what? Everyone on this list was very shocking. Yeah, I think this whole list, like, I'm very impressed with the podcast research gods. Yeah, I would say, like, Vic, you know, Victor up there. Oh, uh, how could I forget Tower? He's the only one that was just like, well, that's just fun. Yeah, he was lighthearted. And everybody else, you were like, ooh, yikes, scary. They could all be all at number one together, and Victor would just kind of hang out. At number 10, yeah. But I don't think anything was left off that I can think of. I can't think of any. They hit all the ones that were in my head, so. Same here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. 
You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far, you can listen to Morbid anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. We hope you keep it weird until Monday and keep those location services on to avoid an international manhunt. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.